This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. middle of chapter 47, page 703. And he's describing how every day we experience the exodus from Egypt. We personally experience the exodus from Egypt. Egypt is the existential angst that the neshama, the soul, experiences. Being trapped in the body, in the material, in the physical, in the ego. And how do we achieve the exodus from Egypt? How do, we, how do we leave Egypt? So we leave Egypt through the Torah and the mitzvot. Hashem, out of His love for us and His caring for us and His kindness for us, invests Himself in the Torah, in the mitzvah. And when you study Torah, when a Jew studies Torah and does a mitzvah, you connect with Hashem. That is your freedom. That is how you free yourself from this um, exile. And he says the first step is that you have to want to accept, the, accept Hashem as your personal God. When you say that God is one and you deliver yourself, surrender yourself, and dedicate yourself to Hashem, and then you become unified with Hashem. And then you, when you study Torah and do mitzvot, you become unified with Hashem. And he discussed the difference between Abraham, the patriarchs, which were before Mount Sinai, and we today who are post-Mount Sinai. But Abraham, on his own, reached such a spiritual level that he was able to reach a level where he became a chariot completely nullified before God, completely egoless. But for us, however, we are not able to experience godliness on that level. So Hashem gave us a gift. He gave us the Torah. When we do a mitzvah, we study Torah, even though experientially, spiritually, we're not on that level. But when we do a mitzvah, we become unified with God, when we study Torah. And a gift, we know, is not commensurate to your, your actions. If, you, if it's commensurate to your actions, then it's not a gift. Then you earn it. The patriarchs, they earned their relationship with God because they were on that level. They were on a very high level. They were very intense, very profound very spiritual. We, however, are not on that level. So we don't earn it. That's why it's called a gift. Matan Torah, God gave us a gift. Because we're, we 
are not on the level that we are unified with God 24-7. We are very natural and very earthy and very... We just don't have that same godly connection. But God gave us a gift and He enabled us to connect with Him 24-7 by studying Torah and doing mitzvot. Every single Jew, from the greatest to the smallest, has the opportunity to become unified with God. And in addition to being called a gift, Matan Torah, the Torah is also an inheritance. As the very first words that we teach a Jewish child when they start speaking, the very first words out of their mouth is, we teach them the words of Torah, Tziva, Elanu, Moshe, Meirasha. The Torah that Moshe commanded us is an inheritance. An inheritance is even more than a gift. A gift, even though you don't earn a gift, but you do have to do something to trigger a gift. A person doesn't give someone a gift unless they please him. It's like, it's like giving a bonus. You worked very hard. You went beyond the call of duty. So after I pay you your just reward, now I'm going to give you a bonus. I'm going to give you a gift. I don't, you can't demand it from me. You know, it's not something you've earned, but nevertheless, you cause, you cause me delight, because I'm delighted that your behavior, you're behaving in such a beautiful way. Therefore, I'm going to give you way beyond what you've earned. I'm giving you a gift. So yes, the gift is not commensurate to your behavior, but nevertheless, there has to be some input on your part to trigger that gift. Versus inheritance, you have to do nothing. You don't have to be worthy to inherit. A one-day-old child who hasn't done anything, all he's done is that he is, he's, his being, that he exists, inherits everything. If his parents are billionaires, he inherits every last penny. He's a baby, a day old. He hasn't done anything, hasn't accomplished anything, hasn't triggered anything. It's just his being, his existence itself. He inherits everything. So he's highlighting and emphasizing that even a Jew who has no spiritual inclination, who has no spiritual sensitivity and no spiritual development, to trigger any, evoke any response from on high. And yet, this Jew inherits the entire Torah. God has invested himself and given himself to this Jew entirely. God's very essence, his holiness. When this Jew studies Torah, when he does a mitzvah, he connects with the divine essence. Whether he's worthy or not worthy. Whether he's appreciative or not appreciative. Whether he understands what's going on or doesn't understand what's going on. Just like the day old child. Has no appreciation, no understanding. What's happening? It doesn't change the fact. He inherits everything. So too, when the Jew studies Torah, even though he has no clue what has just happened. He studied a verse of Chumash and Rashi. He has no idea what's going on. Put on tefillin, litter Shabbat, she litter Shabbat candle. Doesn't matter. At that moment, that Jew has become connected with the very essence of God. God has invested his essence into the Torah and into the mitzvah, which only highlights and emphasizes the love that God has for us, how much he cares for us. That even though we're spiritually unworthy, we're like the day old child. We're not worthy. We haven't done anything to earn it, to deserve it, even to trigger a favorable response. 
Just like when the Jews were in Egypt. The Jews were in Egypt, they reached the 49 levels of impurity. Not only weren't they worthy of being redeemed, they were, they were in the exact opposite place. They were as far away from redemption as imaginable. Had they remained in Egypt for another moment, they would have been lost forever. That's how far out they were. And yet, God showed, demonstrated such a love, such a caring for us, that He personally came to Egypt and redeemed us and took us out and brought us to Mount Sinai and brought us into His innermost chamber and gave us the Torah and the mitzvah. And this love and caring is repeated each and every day and each and every moment. Because we are, especially our generation, we are the spiritual midgets. And we are like that one-day-old child. There is no appreciation, no understanding, clueless. And yet, God invests His essence. When we study Torah and we do a mitzvah, we have the same effect, the same impact as when Moses did the mitzvah. The same holiness as when the prophet Isaiah did the mitzvah. And Moses himself, when you put on tefillin, you draw down God's essence. God invests his essence in us. Such simpletons. With no spiritual sensitivity, appreciation, awareness. This is the ultimate demonstration of how much God loves us and cares for us. That he abandons the heavens and the heavens of heavens. Where he is not found, you can't find God in the heavens and the heavens of heavens. And where is God found? In that pure tefillin. In that Shabbat candle. In that penny that you give to tzedakah. In you. When you accept, when you say Shema Yisrael. And you accept God's sovereignty over yourself. And you, and you devote yourself to Hashem. Accept upon yourself God's sovereignty. You nullify your ego and give yourself over to God. And then you do Torah and mitzvah. This is the ultimate expression of love. And then nature, you can't help it. When someone cares for you, you can't help but care, care for them. When someone loves you, you can't help but love them back. It's a mirror. The mirror can't help but reflect you back. So God loves us and cares for us. We can't help but love God in return. And that's true if it's your peer, if it's your equal, how much more so. When there's no connection, God so transcendent, transcends our whole universe, transcends our whole frame of reference. And God's holiness, His intimate self that even transcends the spiritual. And yet, God cares for me personally, individually, today. And He redeems me from Egypt, from my Egypt. He redeems my soul from its existential angst, from its pain. And relieves it of its pain by bringing me into His innermost chamber by kissing me and hugging me and being intimate with me through the Torah and the mitzvah, I can't help but love God in return. So this meditation is not on something, an event that happened 3,322 years ago. This is something that's happening today. God is taking us out of Egypt every moment, in the morning and at night, every day. We have our personal Egypt. We are in our Egypt and... God, out of, his, out of His infinite love, just like then, God personally took us out of Egypt. God is personally taking us out of Egypt through Torah and Mitzvah. And the moment you think about it and you're aware of it, you realize how much God cares about us personally and individually. You can't help but care about God and reciprocate. And love Hashem. And nothing will stop you from connecting, from 
kissing Hashem and hugging Hashem by studying His Torah and doing His mitzvah and accepting upon ourselves the yoke of heaven. Yeah. But as for us, the children of Abraham, for us it is a heritage and a gift in that He has given, given us His Torah and has clothed in it His will and wisdom, which are united with His essence and being in perfect unity. And surely this is as if He gave us His very self, as it were, since His wisdom and will are one with Him. Through Torah study and performance of mitzvah, we are able to take Him, as it were, and be united with Him. This is as the Zohar comments on the verse, that they bring to me an offering. The word to me, says the Zohar, actually means to take me, to take Hashem. The question is, why does it say in the verse, V'yikhuli, you should take to me? It should have said, V'yitnu, you should give. You should give the offering, teruma, the donation. V'yikhu means you should take. What do you mean you should take? You should give, not take. So the Zohar says that V'yikhuli means, referring to Hashem, says you will take me. How does a Jew take God? Through teruma. Truma, the Zohar says, refers to Torah. Truma are the words Torah, Mem, the Torah that was given in 40 days. So God says that through the Torah you can take me. God enabled us to take Torah. And he says when someone sells an item, as the Medrash says, when you sell an item, you don't take the seller with the item. You get the, the item that you purchased, but you don't get the one who sold it to you. But Hashem gave us the Torah, and He says, when you take my Torah, not only do you get my Torah, you get me as well. I come along with the Torah. When you study Torah, you're also taking me. The Yikuli, Hashem says, you're taking me. How do you take me? Through Terumah, through the Torah. And Terumah also means Tzedakah. Because through Mitzvah, through Torah, Mitzvah, that's how you take me, you take Hashem. Zohar interprets the word offering as referring to the Torah, inasmuch as it is a composite of the word Torah and the letter Mem, alluding to the Torah that was given after Moses' 40-day sojourn on the mountain. The numerical value of Mem is 40. The Zohar goes on to explain that through Terumah, through Torah, Jews are enabled to take me to take Hashem. The text should hence have read, me and an offering. Since me refers to Hashem and an offering refers to Torah, it would seem more appropriate for the verse to state, you shall take me and an offering, since it is by means of the Torah that the Jew takes me. And not only do you get the Torah, when you take the Torah, you also get me as well. Or even in the literal meaning of Torah, when you take, give tzedakah, not only do you take that mitzvah, but you also take me as well. So it should have said, you take me and truma. If the meaning is v'yichu, you should take, so you get me, when, it, when a Jew studies Torah, you get me and you get the Torah. Why does it say v'yichu li truma? Not utruma and truma. And the answer is, except... Except that both are one and the same. Hashem and Torah are truly one. For the verse to state, me and an offering, we might be led to believe that the two are separate entities. 
When in truth, they are truly one and the same. Hashem invests His essence in the Torah. So when you study Torah, the Torah is Hashem's will and Hashem's wisdom. Hashem and His will and wisdom are one and the same, are inseparable. So you actually have Hashem. When you are studying Torah, when you are grasping a concept in Torah, when you are studying Hashem's will and wisdom, that is Hashem. You have grasped Hashem Himself. When your mind grasps a concept in Torah, your mind grasps Hashem. The infinite. Hashem Himself. Your finite mind grasps Hashem Himself. So that's what the Torah is saying. You take me, Teruma. The me and the Torah are one. You get me, the Torah, it's all the same. They're inseparable. It's not two separate things. If you would have said you get me and the Torah, it's two separate things. It's not two separate things. God and the Torah are one. And when the Jew connects to Torah, through Torah we become one with God. We grasp Hashem, we become one with God, we connect with Hashem. So Hashem invests Himself in the Torah. His very essence in the Torah. It's inseparable from the Torah. And when we become inseparable from Torah, when you take the Torah to yourself, you take it to your heart, you take it to your mind, you internalize it, you grasp it, you understand it, you are grasping Hashem Himself. You are internalizing Hashem Himself. You are becoming one and inseparable with Hashem Himself. And that's the ultimate gift. We, are, we become intimate with God. There's no way we become intimate with God, only through Torah. When you study Torah, and the Torah becomes one with your mind, inseparable. When you understand the concept, it becomes inseparable with, from yourself, because you understand. Once you understand 2 plus 2 is 4, you can never understand otherwise, because it becomes part of you. It's like when you digest food, it becomes part of your bloodstream. It's inseparable. So when you study a concept, the idea becomes, you absorb the idea. Once you absorb and assimilate the idea, it becomes like part of your bloodstream. It becomes part of you. You can't separate. Just like you can't separate the food once it becomes part of your bloodstream. So you have absorbed the Torah. Once you've absorbed the Torah, you've absorbed Hashem. So you become intimate with Hashem. There's no other way a Jew can become intimate with Hashem as through, through Torah. Through, through a penetrating studying of Torah, concentration in Torah, understanding Torah in depth to the best of your ability. When your mind is fully engaged in studying Torah and understanding a concept in Torah, your mind is becoming absorbed and absorbs the Torah, which is Hashem's wisdom. And Hashem and His wisdom are one and the same and inseparable. You are taking me. Hashem says, you are taking me. Because the Torah, that is me. I have invested my essence in the Torah. So you have become intimate with Hashem. And that's the greatest act of love Hashem is attracted to me to us and He loves us and He's intimate with us and He brings us into His, his innermost chambers even the ministers are not allowed His intimate chambers and He brings us into His intimate chambers and He's intimate with us and He kisses us and He hugs us and He's intimate with us so how can a Jew not reciprocate and love Hashem in return? someone cares about you and is interested in you and is attracted to you and is intimate with you you can't help but reciprocate and feel intimate with Hashem and love Hashem and care about Hashem and love Him in return that's common sense that that's nature that's natural not only nature our godly nature that is human nature if someone loves you and cares about you you're going to love them and care about them in return 
Try it. It's impossible. You know that someone cares about you and likes you. You're going to find it it's impossible not to like them in return. It's like a mirror. Could the mirror fight back? The mirror can't fight back. The mirror reflects back whatever, whatever you project into the mirror. So a heart in the heart, as King Solomon says, as we learned earlier, it's like a mirror. In chapter 46, if you love someone, that person can't help but love you in return. If you really care about them and like them, they'll like you in return. And that's true even if two peers like each other and care for each other and love each other. Imagine if there's no, if, if Einstein suddenly takes an interest in you or the greatest king and mightiest king or the greatest person suddenly took a, an interest, ignored everyone else and felt an attraction to you and cared about you and loved you and elevated you and how much more so? Hashem. And there's an infinite gap between us and Hashem. Hashem takes such a personal interest in each and every one of us and gives us an inheritance and gives us a gift and an inheritance and gives us the Torah and gives us the ability to, to uh, achieve an excess in our personal Egypt each and every day, each and every moment. We can't help but love Hashem in return. And therefore we do the Torah, we do the mitzvot with love and passion, not just cold-bloodedly or mechanically or by rote, it's alive. It's real. It's suffused with love and feeling and passion and caring. And this is an easy path, a very doable, achievable path for each and every Jew, especially in our generation. Precisely because we're so spiritually low and, and so... We're like the spiritual midges in comparison to our ancestors precisely because of it. It only emphasizes the distance between us and Hashem, and yet Hashem loves us and cares about us. Even though we are like unfeeling, and we do the mitzvah, and we don't even realize what we're doing, we don't even realize what's happening, we don't even realize, while we're experiencing it, we're experiencing the mitzvah, and God is with us, and His essence is with us, and His holiness is with us, and we're able to draw down the same holiness that Moses drew down when he does a mitzvah. And yet, we don't feel anything, and despite all of that, Hashem is still with us and loves us and cares about us so much. How can we help but not love Hashem in return? Here, now, me, right this moment. This is real. This is the meaning of what we recite. And you have given to us, O Lord, our God, with love. Because of His great love for us, He granted us a gift that he be our God, so that we may be united with him. The meaning is, we say in the prayer, that with love you gave us Shabbos, or you gave us whatever other gift God gave us. But here, one of the meanings is, that the gift that you gave us, you know what the gift that you gave us is? That Hashem the fact that God is my God. The fact that God associates himself with us, that is the greatest gift. That is the greatest gift of all. You gave us a matana, a gift. What's the gift? That we can say that God is my God, my personal God. That God is my personal God. And this is the essence of Judaism. It's a personal relationship. God is my personal God. God is not some abstraction, some otherworldly energy, some crystal energy, some spiritual, mystical, esoteric. It boils down to, it's a personal God. And God has a personal relationship with me. And He cares about me personally. 
And he took me out of Egypt and he's taking me out of my own personal Egypt. Today, now. And he's lifting me up and bringing me into his innermost chambers. And he is intimate with me, personally. And he is kissing me and hugging me and he's intimate with me. But when God gets personal, when someone gets personal with you, you can't help but reciprocate and get personal and back. You can't help it. God is very personal with us. It's a very personal relationship. It's upfront and it's personal. See, so you can't remain cold and indifferent. You can't help but get upfront and personal and care about God personally. Have a personal relationship, an individual personal relationship with Hashem. My God, Elokeinu, God is my personal God. Not some collective great God that's no personal connection with. We're talking about a marriage, a relationship, a personal connection. God personally cares about me, individually, and is taking me out of my personal existence here, now. Elokeinu, that's the greatest gift of all. What did Hashem give us? Vetitin lono. Hashem Elokeinu. That Hashem is Elokeinu, our personal God. That's the greatest gift that God gave the Jewish people, and collectively, and each individual Jew, personally and individually. And it is also stated, for by the light of uh, uh, your countenance, have you given us, O Lord our God, once again stressing the gift he has given us, that is, he is our God. This is also from the, from the Shemona Esrei, from the silent prayer, Sim Shalom. And he goes on to list He gave us other things, but the real, the deeper meaning is the fact. Again, what did you give us? What's your greatest gift of all? God, you are my personal God. There's no greater gift. Than There's nothing that warms the heart. There's nothing that gives you comfort and strength. There's nothing that connects you more than the realization that God is my personal God. God loves me and cares about me. And is attracted to me. And therefore, I can't help but care and love God in return. And this is personal. This is not generalizations or abstractions or historical or rituals or customs. This is real. To be Jewish means to be upfront and personal. It all starts with the exodus from Egypt. Exodus from Egypt was personal. God got personal. He personally entered into Egypt and took us out. He personally gave us the Torah and brought us into his innermost chambers. It's personal. It's a marriage relationship. Judaism is very personal. Mysticism could be very abstract. Religion could be very philosophical, theological, theological. But it's not personal. Judaism is very personal. It's a personal relationship between God and the Jewish people. It's a marriage. And between God and each and every Jew. And you can't remain indifferent. You can't remain cold and detached and observant. To be Jewish means to become active. To be upfront and personal, to become an active participant, to care, and to get involved, personally involved. And that's what the verse says, to do the mitzvah with all your heart is something that's close to every single Jew. Even today, 
the least spiritual generation of all. And yet, the Torah was given to us, and each and every one of us could be upfront and personal with God and have a personal relationship and a loving relationship and do the mitzvah passionately and with fervor and with love and with enthusiasm, with joy, joyfully. Because once you realize that Judaism is a personal relationship and a personal connection, these are not just rituals and customs. God is investing himself in the mitzvah and he's investing himself in the Torah and he's giving himself to us. He has invested his essence into us. What was the greatest gift he gave us? Hashem Elokeinu. God made us his personal God, that he is our personal God. And for that we are grateful and for that we are thankful. We thank Hashem. Thank you, Hashem, for giving us the greatest gift of all. Therefore, since this unity with him and the gift we have received, that he is our God, that depends on our spiritual service, is within the province of every Jew. Were this level achieved only through one's spiritual service, it would be correct to say that not everyone has yet received the loftiest level of, of unity, whereby God, Hashem, becomes his God, since, however, we, we are granted this level of an inheritance and a gift. It applies to all Jews equally for the request that the gift is, has nothing to do with the status of the recipient. Should a person be rightful heir, he inherits no matter what his standing. Should, should the benefactor decide to shower his benevolence upon an individual, the, that individual is, is a valid recipient. recipient receipt. No matter how understanding uh, he may be, not so wages which are com com commensurate with toil, at any rate, since the unity is equally attainable by all Jews, therefore, nothing stands in the way of a soul's unity with, with Hashem and his life except one's will. So the person not to that all, God forbid, to cleave to him, and this unity will not be achieved. So the only thing that can get in the way is ego. If we don't want to connect with Hashem, if there's no desire, you know, all it takes to black out reality, one little finger. Put your finger in front of your eyes, and suddenly you don't see anything. The whole world is closed to you. The sun could be shining, it could be beautiful, the stars, majestic, the scenery could be stunning. You could, be, you could be in Hawaii, you could be in the most beautiful places, you could be standing in front of the wonders of the seven wonders of the world. Your fingers in front of your eyes, you see nothing. You are blocking yourself. You're not allowing, you're not allowing anything in. So God is, it's like a, a relationship. It's, this is not a technical. Since we're talking about something personal, a personal relationship with God, it's a marriage. So God is interactive, just like in a relationship. It's a two-way street. If you are cold and indifferent to your spouse, you can't expect your spouse to be, you know, to want you. You know, it's not a machine. It's not you press a button and something happens. It's interactive. It's alive. If you open your heart, if you love, the other person loves you back. 
if you turn, if you're ice, icy and cold and indifferent, and you turn your back, then your spouse will turn his back on you. As it says, God complained, they turned their back to me. What do you mean they turned their back to me? Because the question is, there's nowhere to hide from God. How could you? God is everywhere. But just like you can have your best friend living at the other end of the world, in Australia, but love transcends time and space. You see, your hearts are still connected. You still think about each other. You feel each other. You connect with each other. If something happens to, you, to, you, to your loved one at the other end of the world, you'll feel it instantly. There's no boundaries. Love transcends time and space. But you can have a person standing right next to you, the guy in the corner, corner office, that you can't stand and he can't stand you and he's trying to backstab you for the last 20 years of your life and undermining you while painting this fake smile at you every morning. He can be right next to you and you could might as well be in Mars and you're on Earth and the distance between you is because your hearts are not to turned towards each other. Your hearts, there's a hatred, there's ice and cold and... And then you can physically be standing next to each other and yet you're millions of miles apart. <laughs> the same thing is with Hashem. Hashem says they're turning to me. They're doing the Torah, they're doing the mitzvah, they're turning to me. But they're turning their back. They have no interest. They're doing it by rote. They're doing it mechanically. There's not a spark of joy. There's not a spark of love. There's not a spark of thoughtfulness. It's ice. It's cold, it's insensitive, it's harsh, it's arrogant, it's egotistical. They're on some ego trip to prove how religious they are, to prove how brilliant they are, or to get a share in the world to come. They're not thinking about God, they're not thinking about another person, they're not thinking about anyone but themselves. It's selfish, it's self-centered, it's self-absorbed, it's coarse, it's crass, it's the antithesis of everything that's godly and decent and good. So if you turn your back to Hashem, Hashem turns his back to you. It's interactive. It's a relationship. It's alive. You have to be open. A drop. At least a drop. That's the difference in chametz and Matz. It's the same letters. The only difference is the ches and the hey. What's the difference between the ches and the hey? They're also alike. There's a little window. A little tiny window. All God asks is open a pinhole. You have to at least have a little opening. When a person is so closed, the person is so smug and content and satisfied and arrogant and there's no humility and there's no brokenheartedness and there's no openness to change and there's no willingness to learn and there's no hunger and there's no thirst and there's no desire, then, then you've closed the door. You put the finger in front of the eyes and then completely block yourself out, disconnected yourself and you're turning, you, you're turning it back to Hashem. It's like a teacher. It says, a teacher, in order for a teacher to teach, it is more than the student wants to learn, the teacher wants to teach. The Talmud puts it, more than the calf wants to suckle, the mother, the cow, wants to, wants, wants to nurse. The teacher wants to teach more than the students want to teach. So our teacher in Jerusalem once told us, but it also works the reverse. <laughs> More than the students don't want to learn, <laughs> the teacher doesn't want to teach. If the students are not open and the students close their mind and there's no interest, then the teacher just closes down. Uh, if you're not interested, 
there has to be a two-way street. There has to be some connection. There has to be some glue. There has to be. What's the what's the connection between Hashem and us? There has to be a love. There has to be some openness, some humility, some connection. But if a person closes himself and says, "I have no desire. I don't want to connect with God, and I'm not interested, and I couldn't care less." And if you're ice cold and indifferent, then then you've shuttered yourself and you've shut yourself off, and then. Hashem can't reach you. Your ego gets in the way. Hashem can't reach you. Hashem's love can't reach you. Hashem loves you and loves every one of us. But if you shut yourself off and you have zero openness to spirituality and zero openness to God, zero openness to godliness and zero humility and no sense of brokenheartedness or seeking or searching or something, or something is missing, there's a little hole, there's something I can learn or something I um, have to seek for and search for. You're a closed book, a closed mind. You can't fill a full cup. Then you repulse God and God turns away. You turn your back to God, God turns away. All Hashem asks of us is just open a needle hole. Just open a tiny opening. The moment you show the slightest opening, the slightest willingness, that's all. He says all you have to do is say the Shema Yisrael. Say it and mean it. Shema Yisrael, Hashem, God, you're my personal God. The moment you open yourself up and you have that little opening that God I want and it's a privilege that you are my God and we have a personal relationship and I'm, I'm, then God responds. As it says, open, give me a little opening, a tiny opening and I will give you the opening of the ulam. This huge, gigantic opening. This is godly, infinite opening, but God wants from us something. You have to put your pinky in cold water. If you don't even put your pinky in cold water, you're not even willing to dip your pinky in cold water. You're not willing to do anything. Then it can't work. We're not machines. This is, this is a reality here. We're talking about a real, live relationship. God really loves us. He really cares about us. And he personally, it's a personal relationship. And God gets personal. And when you get personal, you, know, you make yourself vulnerable. Because what if the other person rejects you? It hurts. It hurts. You open your heart to someone and you open yourself up to someone and the other person is very ice cold and indifferent and rejects you. That's, uh, that's very painful. There are many people who won't even put themselves in the position of making themselves vulnerable because it's too painful. Rejection is too painful. If you don't care, then you don't get rejected. There's no fear of rejection. Or you're so afraid of rejection that you, you become cynical and you don't care and you don't allow yourself to be rejected. But then you lose out also. You don't have the ability to love and to, to open yourself up. So God, is, so to speak, is making himself vulnerable. He's putting himself in the position of rejection. He's putting his fate, so to speak, in our hands. And when we cold-bloodedly reject his overtures, <laughs> and we're indifferent, as the Navi says, the prophet says, you can turn to me. You're doing the Torah and the mitzvah. That's even more painful. But you're turning your back to me. There's no heart, there's no, nothing personal, it's cold. It's, 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 that rejection is more painful than anything else. So there has to be an opening. That's all God wants, an opening. Just saying the Shema Yisrael, say the Shema Yisrael, and mean it. Shema Yisrael, Hashem, God, you're my God, you're my personal God. And I'm aware that you care about me personally, and it's a personal relationship. And therefore, it's a privilege that you're my God, and I'm proud that you're my God, and I have a personal relationship with you. The moment you have the slightest opening, then the heart evokes the heart, the spirit evokes the spirit, it's interactive, and God responds, not in kind, but God responds 
totally not commensurate to our overtures. But immediately okay. when he does so desire and accepts and draws upon himself his blessed godliness and declares, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, then surely is his soul spontaneously absorbed into God's unity. But the individual's yearning, spirit evokes spirit and awakening from above, and draws forth and bestows spirit, an added measure of spirituality, so that the person is drawn to God and proves to him. And this dynamic within the person's soul is a form of exodus from Egypt. The spiritual counterpart of the exodus is the acceptance of the kingdom of heaven during the recitation of the Shema, and one's desire to cleave to God and be united with him, for by these means the soul frees itself from the exile and confines of the body and becomes one with God. So the moment we become upfront and personal with God and we take it personally and we reciprocate and we respond that we love God and we care about God and, we're, and that God is my personal God and we transcend our own egos and unite God that God is my God and my ego doesn't get in the way because I have connected myself with God and God I belong to you and you are, and I am yours and you therefore you're uniting the reality of God you're unifying God even in relationship to your own ego you're saying God is one you mean including myself and God is one there's no other reality but God it means including my own personal ego which that's the only thing that I own that I'm in power of that I can really deliver to God and when I give that over to God by saying, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokein, Hashem Echad, God is one, and therefore I belong to God and my ego is not in the way, and you unify God and you become personal with God, that's how you achieve your personal exodus from Egypt, from your own personal existential angst, from your own personal confinement and, and, and exile, and your soul is freed and it soothes the soul because you become unified with God. You become unified with God's holiness, with God's essence. You become intimate with God. That's the ultimate freedom. That's the ultimate. When we can become one with God, we can become absorbed with God and become unified within the absolute unity of God on a conscious level. That is the greatest freedom. There is no greater freedom. That is the exodus. That's the ultimate. At that moment, that's the most soothing thing for the soul. The soul feels released. The soul feels redeemed. The soul feels free. The soul feels, con the soul feels connected. This is the greatest freedom. This is the ultimate ideal and goal that a person could achieve in life. And that's the answer. It's the only answer, the only antidote to the exile. Otherwise, the soul is in pain. The soul is in anger. The soul is suffering. And that's especially true in our generation. When the world is so spiritually oppressive and the ego has become so, spir so spiritually oppressive and so arrogant and coarse and crass, and the antithesis of everything refined and godly and good and decent and truthful. The world has become so false, become such a farce. And yet, we can achieve something so genuine, something so authentic. When we do a mitzvah, when we study Torah here and now, on the Upper East Side of the year 2010, every day on a Wednesday afternoon, a Wednesday morning, every time we do a mitzvah, every time we study Torah, every time we say the Shema, we are connecting with the essence of God. We're drawing down the holiness of God, just like Moses did when he said Shema Yisrael. I mean, this is mind-boggling. 
this is the ultimate liberation, the ultimate freedom that we can achieve here and now. It's the ultimate act of, ultimate demonstration of God's love for us, how much He loves us and He cares for us now, us individuals. Not, our, not only our ancestors, our holy ancestors, us. Human beings, down-to-earth human beings, as limited as we are, as, 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 you know, as challenging as our situation is, God loves us here and now, in our situation, within our situation, and is giving us the ability to lift us up and to redeem us from the pit all the way to the peak, from the abyss to the peak, to the peak, the highest peak. God's innermost chamber. And this we can achieve now, every moment, every day. Is there a greater demonstration of God's unconditional, infinite, personal love and caring for every one of us? So how can we help and not help ourselves not reciprocate and develop a personal love and relationship with Hashem? Which is what Judaism is about. It's that personal, intimate, personal relationship. We believe in a personal God. That's the difference between Eastern mysticism and Judaism. Judaism believes in a personal God. It's not some otherworldly, esoteric, abstract, crystals. This is upfront and personal. Judaism is very personal. It's the essence of God touching our essence. Here and now. Actual. Immediate. Now. The same holiness that Moses brought down, we are bringing down now. Here. Right here and right now. At this moment. Within us. When we say the Shema. Whoa. What a mind-blowing concept. What an empowering concept. What an what a inspiring concept. Therefore, it was ordained that the paragraph concerning the exodus from Egypt be read specifically during the recital of the Shema as an adjunct to it, even though, i.e. recalling and verbalizing the exodus, is a commandment by itself, not pertaining to the commandment to recite the Shema, as stated in the Talmud and Codes. So the question is, why do we, what's the connection between the Shema and the third, uh, the first two paragraphs, and the third paragraph, which deals with the mitzvah of tzitzis, and the mitzvah of tzitzis is not even relevant um, at night. We're not obligated at night. So why do we read the third Parsha, we read it because it contains the mitzvah of remembering the exodus from Egypt, which we are obligated to recite both in the morning and at night. Every day of the year, both in the morning and at night, we're obligated to re-experience, to relive, as he said earlier, the exodus from Egypt. But what's the connection between the Shema and the exodus from Egypt? But the answer is, it's all connected. Because we're not just remembering the exodus from Egypt that happened thousands of years ago, 3,322 years ago. We're remembering the exodus, we're reliving and re-experiencing the exodus from Egypt we're experiencing today. What is our personal Egypt, our personal exile, our personal confinement, our existential angst that the soul suffers every moment that we exist in this world? The soul is in pain, unbearable pain, traumatic pain. And how do, how do we, the souls in the concentration camp, and how does the soul get out of this Egypt? When you accept the Shema, when you unify God and say, God is one, and my ego is not in the way. God is one, not only God is king of the world, he's my king. God is one that, because I belong to him, and my ego is not an interference with God, because I, I belong to Hashem, 
And therefore, I do the Torah, I accept upon myself the yoke of heaven, which leads me to accept upon myself the yoke of the mitzvot, and I do the Torah, and I do the mitzvot, that is my exodus from Egypt. That's how I achieve my personal exodus from Egypt. For they are actually the same thing. Accepting the kingdom of heaven during the Shema and the exodus from Egypt are truly one and the same, since this acceptance is one's personal spiritual exodus, whereby the divine soul escapes the encumbrance of the body. Likewise, the paragraph referring to, to the exodus from Egypt also concludes, I am the Lord your God. This also accords with what has been explained earlier, that through the exodus, one ensures that God becomes his God by achieving total unification with him. From the above, we realize that the exodus from Egypt is a daily event in the life of a Jew. Hence, just as during the first historical exodus, as explained earlier, God showed us his boundless love, obligating us to respond in kind, loving him. As water mirrors the face to the face, so too should the daily individual and spiritual exodus affect us, since God constantly shows us his boundless love. That is the exodus from Egypt. When God becomes our personal God, that's how we achieve, it's a personal relationship and it's a personal connection that is the conclusion of the whole Shema. Because that is what Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekein Hashem Echad is. That is how we become unified with God. God becomes my personal God. And that's how we achieve the exodus from Egypt. So therefore, once we realize that we, every day God gives us the ability, personally takes us out of our own personal Egypt, we can't tell but love Hashem in return. Chapter 46 and 47, these are very, very powerful, uh, powerful chapters. He explains how even a Jew who is spiritually insensitive and doesn't have the capacity to develop a, um, an inner life or spiritual sensitivity could also achieve a passionate, joyous love for Hashem. And it comes very natural, based on the idea that the heart is like a mirror. If someone loves you, you can't help but love them in return. If someone is personal, takes a personal interest in you and cares about you personally and loves you personally and, and demonstrates that love, if you're aware of it, sometimes you're not aware of it, but at the moment you're aware of it, you can't help but love that person in, in return. And once we realize how much Hashem loves us and cares about us personally, takes a personal interest in us, and is intimate with us and is attracted to us and takes us into his innermost private chambers and hugs us and kisses us and is intimate with us just like when he took us out of Egypt and then we realize that this repeats itself each and every day of our lives because we are in Egypt spiritually speaking we are in Egypt we're in exile our soul is in exile it's it's the story of our lives the story of our soul the journey of our soul it's our personal story our soul is in exile in our ego identity, and our natural identity, our natural selves just wants to do whatever feels natural, whatever feels comfortable, and nothing to do with godliness, nothing to do with truth. And we just indulge and we pursue all our energies. We spend pursuing our natural indulgences and our natural tendencies. And meanwhile, our soul is in, is in anguish because our soul is godly, our soul is divine, our soul is heavenly. And the soul comes into this world and all of its energies are, are concealed, masqueraded, concealed, blocked. And it's not allowed to express itself. 
and the soul is in pain, excruciating pain. We can't even imagine the pain of the soul. So much so, the soul yells out, cries out in pain. Sometimes the cry is so loud, we don't even hear it. We numb ourselves to all feelings. People become addicted because they're in such pain that they just have to numb themselves because they're in constant pain and they need something to constantly numb their pain. And that's, that's what fuels their addictive behavior and they don't even realize. But it comes from a very deep, people are very deeply sensitive, spiritually sensitive, actually are more prone to become addicted to whatever it may be precisely because they have such sensitive souls and they're so spiritual and so in touch and there's such pain, they just have to anesthetize themselves from the pain. So they constantly have to distract themselves from the pain or soothe their pain. So the soul is in pain, is in constant pain. And, and you know, the, the, this, this nihilism is just a brave face to cover up on the fact of how much pain you are. So you just live a nihilistic life and you just obliterate yourself. And that's why we have a whole generation that strives to become mindless. You know, just get mindless, get drunk, and get mindless. And, and um, just to anesthetize the pain, because you can't deal with the reality. The pain is so great. The existential angst is so great, because the soul is so spiritually sensitive that, on the contrary, it just shows what, in a, in a certain sense, how the world is so spiritually sensitive today. The soul today is so powerful that we can't, the pain is so unbearable that the only way to deal with this pain is by mindlessness. 24-7 entertainment. <laughs> you have the constantly distraction. You need 24-7 vacation. You can't deal with a moment of reality, <laughs> a moment of truth, a moment of responsibility, a moment of emiss. You need 24-7 constant distraction, constant bluff, constant lies, constant meaninglessness. Constant, it's all about nihilism and mindlessness and because the soul is so powerful today, the soul is so intense that the soul is in pain and is crying out. And that's why you have hundreds of thousands of Jews who have come back home after being cut off for three generations. The soul is starving, the soul is screaming out, the soul is hungry. And despite the fact we live in a society that's done everything to bury the soul, from communism to out-of-control capitalism and consumerism and coarseness and crassness and mindlessness and just party and the message, the nihilistic message, which is all the rage today of nihilism and there is no truth and there is no ideology and you create your own reality and do whatever makes you happy and it's all about power and getting ahead and there's no truth and there's no ideology, there's nothing to believe in. Despite all of that, despite the truth being so buried and yet the soul is just bursting out, you can't bury it. The soul, hundreds of thousands of Jews have come back to the Judaism with a vengeance because the soul today is so powerful, so intense, the soul is in such pain that you know, the, only, the only way to cover up the soul is by this complete mindlessness. And it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even, it doesn't even make rational sense. The position today, the anti-family position, the, the, the position to destroy everything that's moral and ethical and decent and good and kind, it, it doesn't even make sense. It's, it's so illogical and irrational and so self-destructive and so mindless. It's pure mindlessness, pure destruction. But it just shows, instead of being discouraged, you just have to realize it just shows how powerful the soul is today. The soul, 
is so powerful, it's just, it's just screaming out in pain. And therefore, the only response is to completely numb it. That's why everything has to be so loud today. The music has to be so loud. Because if, God forbid, if you toned it down just a drop, you may hear your soul. <laughs> so to drown out the soul, they have to make it the music and the entertainment so loud. And you have to drug everyone up and become so mindless. Because the moment you stop, you turn it off, you can't help but to hear the voice of your soul speaking loud and clear. Get me out of here. Give me something genuine. Give me something. Nourish me. Nurture me. Don't give me junk food. Junk lifestyle. And that's all we're getting today. Junk food. Junk medicine and junk lifestyle. 24-7. 500 channels and nothing to watch. 24-7. But the soul is hungry for something genuine. The soul is hungry for something authentic. Because the soul is so powerful today. And it's, it's, so when you hear that voice, that's the spiritual angst. That's the soul crying out for spiritual nourishment, for godly nourishment, for godly nurturing. And that's why, despite the darkness that we're living through, there's never been such an explosion of Torah like we have today. There's never been such an explosion of Judaism, of authentic Judaism and genuine Judaism, spreading and strengthening throughout all four corners of the world. There are 3,600 Chabad houses like this all over the world growing and expanding and deepening and becoming more powerful with every passing day and reaching another Jew and another Jew and another mitzvah and another candle and another light and another illumination and another uh, act of goodness and kindness and it's just growing exponentially and there's no stopping it. It's an unstoppable river because the current, because this is the force today, this is the reality. This is the soul is hungry. And the moment we tone down the distraction and tone down the <laughs> loud music and the moment we stop feeling, trying to distract ourselves, we just listen to our neshama. We only pay attention we'll hear the clear clarion voice of our neshama, hanker, a clamoring for, for, the, the, for the divine, clamoring for Yiddishkeit, clamoring for godliness, clamoring for genuineness, clamoring for truth. And through Torah, mitzvah, this is our personal exercise. A Jew will never find satisfaction. Not in Buddhism and not in this ism. The only way a Jew will find satisfaction, the only way a Jew will be able to soothe that inner voice and soothe his soul is when he gets upfront and personal. Personal relationship with God. Through saying the Shema Yisrael, Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Echad, studying the Torah, and doing the mitzvot, and making it a daily part of our daily lives. Not only on Shabbat and Yom Kippur and holidays and holy occasions, but every moment, every day of our life, in the morning and in the evening and throughout the day. I am God, your God. Anyone has any questions, comments? Is the Jew in Israel in the same exile as we are? Even deeper. Because when you're in the king's palace, and you're clueless. You're living in the king's palace, and you don't act royally, and you don't, you're not aware of that royalty. And by the way, this is not limited to people who are not yet active Jews, observant Jews. Even Jews who are observant, and who are religious and orthodox. But again, like we discussed here, they're turning to me, but they're turning their back to me. They're not godly, they're not refined, they're arrogant, they're egotistical, they look down at their fellow Jew. 
they feel holier than thou. That's the biggest turnoff. That's the biggest pain. That's the greatest pain. That's that's the ultimate arrogance and ego. You're turning to me already, and yet your heart, it's completely cold and there's no soul and there's no love and there's no passion and there's no joy. It's all about me, myself, and I getting a share in the world to come, not getting a share in the world to come. It's all about myself. I'm not thinking about Hashem. That's the most painful of all. So you're in the king's palace. You're in the royal palace. You're in proximity. You're in Jerusalem. You're in proximity to the holy temple mount, which the Shekhinah never left this place until even during the destruction today. And yet, your heart is not broken. There's no humility. There's no openness. There's no sense of who you are, where you are, what you are. You don't act like a Jew. You're not proud of being Jewish. You, you, you don't feel uplifted. You don't feel inspired. That's the most painful exile of all. When you speak Hebrew, but there's no Jewish content. When you're living in Israel and there's no Jewish connection. That's the most painful of all. Or it's a very external, superficial connection. Egotistical connection. That's the most painful of all. <clears throat> so in being in Israel is a great challenge. Because when you're so close to holiness, you can go one extreme or the other extreme. You can either become extremely holy or you can, God forbid, fall all the way in the other direction. I mean, the amount of self-hating that we see coming from Israel, it it's, it's borders on Nazism. I mean, the Nazis would be proud of some of the propaganda coming from our Jewish brethren against the Jewish people and against, against Israel. So... You know, all in the name of. Uh, so, so you have to be very careful. So it's very. It's just because you're in Israel and just because you speak Hebrew, doesn't guarantee and doesn't. On the contrary, that's a great challenge. It's a tremendous challenge. It's a great challenge. But there are many in Israel that are that are in touch with. Yes, they are in touch with with. If you just have a look, Let's hear from an Israeli. If you just have a look, you know. I advise this to anybody, like, you know, just have a look on the map and you see Israel, it's a miracle. We hold behind of us, it's Arab. It's like Egypt here, uh, Syria here, Lebanon. Everybody's like an us and we are teeny tiny. It's a miracle just to look at this. It's a miracle behind all the wolf, like it's a miracle just to look at this. Every day it's a miracle. It cannot be like all want to eat us, to eat us from all over, and we are still exist. The long time they can take us away, they, they always, damage us, but we are been approved. Like, that ever since, like approved? Ever since the Jew was in you know? Israel, it's always, always been. No, it's never always. When you take it, they always, you know, it's like taking anyway. It's not. It's a miracle. Every day when you look at this, it's a miracle approved. You have Arab Saudi. Saudi, Lebanon, everything, Egypt, all over of us, you know, and we are small like this, and we never bite, like, you know, they, they never eat us, it's the, a miracle. The problem, is, the problem is when you forget that miracle, unfortunately, there are many when people, this, many, many people in Israel, unfortunately, not feel it. who say, who say it's my brawn and my brains and my strength, and they forget the miracle. They forget that it's Hashem who's protecting us. It's not my brains and my brawn and my smart. So that's the danger. 
like Ben Gurion once said, a Jew living in Israel who doesn't believe in miracles is not a realist. Yes, yes. The problem is when a Jew lives in Israel and forgets about Hashem and starts thinking, you know, maybe I'm so clever and I'm so smart. It's the same like that. And that's what happened with Aslo. We get used to it, like you know, when it's coming, like uh, in, even in a. Uh, in uh, Iraq, like when they have this card, when also today we have like a, another bomb coming, it's like they say, mm, okay, wow, and uh, nothing happened, you know, it's a miracle. No, so many scud and not even one. He fall close to children, close to this, nobody died, one. But if something happened, like to somebody, everybody shocked, wow, what happened this time? Yeah. Don't understand, yeah. it's a bomb, like watching, 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 always, like Absolutely. coming to us, and it's, it's, the, 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 the mission is to, to, to attack us, like it's not, uh, not uh, to... But, but unfortunately, and it's close yeah. to us and it's not yeah, 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 yeah. But, un- but, un- life, but unfortunately, you know? starting with Aslo, Aslo was a denial of that miracle. Aslo says, we're, we're here in Israel not because God is protecting us, or God is watching us, so it's a miracle. The Jewish people are a miracle, our existence is a miracle. Aslo says, let's get clever. Let's get diplomatic. That's going to guarantee our safety. If the world sees that we're trying to be nice and we're trying to negotiate and we agree that there's such a thing as a Palestinian state, then the world will, that will guarantee our safety. You've noticed, Israel is treated like a piece of dirt all over the world today. Never, never before in the history of Israel were Israeli generals afraid of traveling to London because they're going to be arrested. After the Six-Day War, they weren't afraid of traveling to London. After Entebbe, they weren't afraid to travel to London after uh, 1981, but today, every time we turned against Hashem and we said, we're, we, it's not God who's giving us our strength. We're getting our strength from the UN, the European Union, the State Department, New York Times, Washington. Instead of getting up and saying, Hashem is my shepherd, Israel is a miracle, there's nothing to negotiate, it's the royal palace, it's not mine to give up, it will be a chutzpah for me, it will be theft to steal to steal something that doesn't belong to me. To give it to the Arabs would be stealing it because they have no connection to this land they never had and never will be and have zero connection to this land. Instead of telling the truth that we are here because Hashem gave it to us and it's a miracle, instead of just speaking Hebrew but speaking with Jewish content, instead we basically told the world we're occupiers, we stole the land, we don't belong here, and it backfires, it doesn't work because a Jew is lying and the world knows that we're lying. Because people can't deal with lies. They can deal with truth. If you got up and told the truth, we are here, we always were here, we always will be here, it's forever and ever, there's nothing to negotiate, there's nothing to discuss. That the world can listen to because it's the truth. We have to stick to our guns and tell the truth. We're not telling our own thing. We didn't create this. As the Rebbe says, when a good large portion of the world were cannibals, when many of the ancestors of our critics were cannibals, we stood at Mount Sinai and God told us, thou shalt not steal. So how dare anyone, especially a Jew, accuse his fellow Jews of stealing land? We stole the land from the Arabs. That's the, the biggest myth, the biggest lie. But instead of telling the truth, we go up there and say, yeah, yeah, we have to negotiate. There has to be a Palestinian state. Yeah. That's the lie. So ever since we turned against Hashem and we started lying to the world and lying to ourselves and being so clever and diplomatic, and it doesn't work. For Jews, lies don't work. What works is, what guarantees our safety is acknowledging the miracle. So that's your answer. You can be in Israel, and you can be in the deepest exile. There's never been a deeper exile than we have today. It's one thing that the Greeks exiled us from Israel. The Babylonians exiled us from Israel. The Romans exiled us from Israel. But that we should exile ourselves 
in the annals of human history, there's never been... What? Where are those groups today? Yeah, exactly, exactly. In the annals of human history, there's never been a single example of a nation that exiled itself. And to who? To its own sworn enemies. Is there a deeper exile, an inner exile? As Ben-Gurion once said, it's easy to take the exile, the Jew out of exile, but it's difficult to take the exile out of the Jew. That's the inner exile that we're discussing here, the inner Egypt. Yes, ex- externally, technically, Israel is very wealthy and Israel is very powerful, but no matter how powerful you are, no matter how mighty you are and how wealthy you are, you're never wealthy or powerful enough, you can afford to lose your soul. With Oslo, Israel lost its soul. And without the soul, you don't have a chance. With soul, we survived for 3,800 years. We survived Hitler. Without a soul, we don't stand a chance. We won't survive for one day. So we, we are relying on, 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 on broken reeds, diplomacy. We have one friend, as the ad says. We answer to a higher authority. Hashem is our friend. Hashem loves us and cares about us and loves us and is intimate with us. Hashem cares us for 3,800 years He's been carrying us. It's a miracle. It's an open miracle. So instead of relying on Hashem, suddenly we got clever. Oh, Hashem, never mind. Barack Obama, he's going to save us and our relationship with the Americans. And I'm suffering from a psychological illness guilt. That's what he's discussing here. That's the inner exile. That's the inner Egypt. That's a psychological Egypt. That's a spiritual Egypt, which is much more oppressive than a physical Egypt. It's much worse than a physical Egypt. When you're living free, and you're not free. The Jews in the ghetto were more free than the Jew who's living free externally, but he's psychologically crippled and terrified and lives his life. Oh, what's, what's the guy going to think? What's the New York Times going to think? What's the State Department going to think? That's not a free person. A free person is a person who's free within who knows that you have a marriage with Hashem, you have a relationship with Hashem. Even when the whole world came down on us like a ton of bricks, 99.9% of the world were opposed to the Jews. And yet, we were free inside. We had a say there, even in the concentration camps, because we knew what we have in the inside. We have a marriage to Hashem. What do we care what the State Department thinks, what this one thinks? We know who we are, we know what we are, we know what we have. No one can take that away from us. That's a free person. So you can be living in material wealth and you can be a slave and a servant and subservient to your masters, to foreign masters. You're not free. But a Jew has a conscience. A Jew is free when he's connected with Hashem. When we answer to a higher authority and that's the only authority we answer to. We don't answer to foreign masters. And we don't answer to any master. And when a Jew is free, the whole world is free. After Entebbe, there was no hijacking for the next 10 years. This war against terrorism will only be won when Jews have the courage of their conviction, just like after 81, to do the right thing and to stand up for what's right and to stand up for life and to stand up against evil. Very clear, clear mind. And not to be impressed by those self-hating Jews that want us to self-destruct. We have to be clear. We have to be clear about what we stand for. We have to be proud of who we are, proud of what we stand for. This is the most oppressive exile. This is the most deepest exile. And that's the most painful exile. You know, if someone slaps you in the face, if your child slaps you in the face, your brother or your sister slaps you in the face, it's the most painful thing in the world. It's not the slap that hurts. It's the pain. When you see our own fellow Jews to be in such an inner exile, to be so, have so little self-respect, 
have so little pride in their own Jewishness, so little connection to our beautiful heritage. So this is the most painful of all. It's the most painful thing of all. Is there a deeper, darker exile than this? But what's the answer? This is the redemption. When you say the Shema Yisrael and you do the Torah and you do the mitzvahs, this is the redemption. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.